Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. Again, uh, thank you, Jim, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us uh, for um, another episode of EdTech Examine. Uh, maybe for the benefit of our listeners, if you can tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, your uh, personal and career history, and how you came to SAIT. Um, so thank, thank you, Chris, for having me. Um, in uh, in uh, 2020, so just over a year, a year ago, I answered a call to, for the Chief Catalyst and Dean of the New School for Advanced Digital Technology and kind of put up my hand and said uh, I'd be interested if I could do both. And uh, not to someone's surprise, but to the delight of both my partners and Saint, we agreed that I could do both um, and be a founding partner of Air Labs, which keeps me very, very close to the investing community and the venture community here in Calgary, but also, um, also being a, a dean and chief catalyst at state. And so, you know, majority of my time for sure is at state. very objective is, but I continue to keep tabs on all the great stuff that's happening in Calgary. As you know, lots of happening um, on the venture side and, and you know, companies that we're investing in. So, yeah, that's a bit of my background. Delighted to be a part of it. Well, that's a great introduction, and I appreciate you t because I'm talking about your background because I think it's interesting for someone like you who who's worked in venture capital who comes into the higher education side. I don't think a lot of people always expect that, but it brings an interesting perspective. And I I was hoping that perhaps for the benefit of our listeners, you could tell us a little bit about State School of Advanced Digital Technology. Now, particularly um, given that a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are both kind of a split between students and professors at universities. So what are the kinds of programs that people can expect since now that's starting to ramp up and um, maybe the, the highlights of the skills that you're ideally trying to cultivate in such a program? Right. And I think the way I like to simply explain the journey that we're on at FADP is, is you know, in in the fullness of time, digital is, is everywhere. So digital is not a separate school per se. Um, digital skills and digital training exists within the school of uh, business, of IT, of hospitality, tourism, construction, all of the schools that are at state. Um, and so part of my role in terms of programming, Eric, is, is to stand up and extract and really use that, that language of chief catalyst is that to catalyze amazing work that's happening at the faculty level and the programming level within the existing schools. And so as somebody who comes from the digital world and my team, we're looking to catalyze and unearth some of the work that's happening already at the school. So look for programming that's actually just really an extension of the existing programming, but really lighting up some of the new digital transformation skills and, and as you can imagine across all the disciplines all business instruction, et cetera. In terms of my own, our own programming, what we're looking at is really two things. Number one, we're looking at, at the areas of doing rapid, rapid programming in the 12 to 15 weeks that look at what we call boot camps or digital skills that take somebody who's, who's saying, 
I, I need to understand what's coming. I need a new mindset shift, and I need some skills. So we really emphasize these boot camps being focused on awareness, mindset, and then skills and stuff. And obviously, in 16 weeks, you're not going to stand up, you know, machine learning skills that will get you into algorithm design. But what it will do, and what we found, is that people who have a domain-specific knowledge of data, for example, people coming out of the patch, and then and some of their friends in energy, actually understand data really well. But they don't understand the use cases for machine learning in 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 either a new organization or in, in, in digital energy. And so we give them, you know, a really deep dive into what's coming down the pipe in energy and data. What are the skill sets and mindsets that you need to have around critical thinking, design thinking, and systems thinking to be ready for anything that comes in energy? And then we follow that on with with, with uh, uh, a third of the specific skills in machine learning, data, VR, and a number of different areas that you'll start to see coming out. So that's the second area. Third area is a little bit more longer term. Is, is SADT itself once you know diploma slash degree programming? Um, but we're really thinking that one through very carefully. Uh, we want to be careful that we don't cross thread other activities that are happening in schools. But we can imagine, because of my work in the venture community, we can imagine things like finishing school for fintech. Imagine you come out with a degree in business either from MRU or UFC. And we want to create a, a two-year or a year-long fintech uh, post-diploma or post-certificate uh, uh, micro-credential or credential in fintech or in digital energy or digital ag. So we're looking at standing programs over the next uh, next uh, year or so. Uh, we have a. I would talk to Elizabeth Cannon, the former president of UFC, recently, and we were talking a little bit about micro-credentials. And so that sounds, it's an interesting concept because um, it, it, and I don't, I'd be curious to know if you, if you would agree with this, Jim, is the idea that uh, somebody will have what, what Cal Newport calls kind of a cross domain career capital. If you can bring a lot of what you already know from, like you said, oil and gas, you know, a lot about data, but you want to get some, a little bit of extra training to boost you to take perhaps largely what you already know to apply it to a new area. Is the is the hope that a micro credential is a little bit less of than of an opportunity cost for someone for retraining? Because I think the four year model has been kind of a, kind of the one and only standard for some time. Do you think that's going to change more broadly the idea of that micro credential being added on to someone's existing education? Well, let me let me use a quote from from my from my book: "Is we overestimate in the near term and we underestimate it in the long run." I think everyone gets pretty excited about a micro-credentialing, but I don't know uh, what Elizabeth said, but, but I can tell you that the, that the competency framework, how you decompose competencies, is a massively misunderstood and, un and underappreciated skill. The idea that you can create micro-credentials without really uh, competencies for the digital world is, is very dangerous, in my opinion, so to be a little bit provocative. I think micro-credentialing in the long run is hugely important, absolutely going to be critical for cross-functional skill development. But do not underestimate the, 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 the challenges in competency decomposition and really understanding what does it mean to, to take apart an existing um, credential base that's very 
years or two years or whatever, and then magically bring that back together into these tiny pieces. That's a challenging. And so we're investing really at SAPP in what we'll call digital competency framework. Just to really decompose some of the new skills for everything from sales and marketing in the new the new firms of scaling to AI, ML, VR, product development, and those kinds of things. So anyway, hopefully that answers your question. Well, that one actually, because I think people are are getting all excited about it. There's a lot of work to do to make it work. So in your mind, Jim, uh, can anyone take these courses or is there like a particular demographic that you're targeting? Great, great question, Chris. I think in the, in the early days, we're after really three kinds of, of, of uh, personas, if you will. The first persona is really the job changer. So it's somebody who is currently employed or underemployed who's looking to say, listen, I, I, need, to, I need to come in and 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 just reboot, recycle what I'm doing today because either I'm, I'm getting laid off, getting laid off, or I just don't feel like my career is set up. I call those the career changes. The second group of people that were were the phone that talking about is 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 those who are who are truly looking to join some of the new technology companies, the entrepreneurial thinkers, those who are going hmm. I'm not sure what my career is going to be, and maybe I'm young, I just started, or I just finished my first degree. I want to get exposed to, the, to these new digital companies. Um, that's, a, that's a group that we think is really valuable, so we can introduce them to some of the skill sets that the new, the new economy companies are, are looking to acquire. So those would be the first two. Longer term, um, is there's, there's a group that I call the future discipline. Those who actually don't see themselves in any future, they actually look to the digital promise. So, what are the things that we can do to engage a whole last, whole swath of our society who's just kind of saying that doesn't look like it to me? And I think we can. I think there's tremendous things that we can do in in that world. One of the things we're looking at, Chris, is is the whole area of low code, no code technologies, which are basically our ability to enable, you know, significant business systems without a lot of coding, that we can actually give those to people who are either um, haven't finished a degree or but are looking to involve themselves with, with working with uh, a, a digital company. So we want to see ways of programming for that third group that really worries me actually for Calgary. So um, that's what I call so again, job changers, job creators, and then this future system. You know, it's that too, Jim, because uh, for the last few years, I've been actually working with uh, Mohamed Kayani at the Haskane School of Business on developing a course where we don't focus in on uh, most. A lot of the entrepreneurship courses are more, uh, you know, revolving around tech startups and focusing more on the technology companies. But instead, we're actually focusing more on the technology that is empowering people. And like you say, like there's this new revolution of uh, no code uh, tools that are available out there that people are not aware of. Yeah, and it, uh, I just love you know, Chris, it's about democratization of opportunity, right? I think the big problems of digital was, it, it hasn't fulfilled this by any sense, but it was this idea 
that the low cost of entry will get us in and get people going. So I think I think we've not quite we've not gotten there. We haven't invested. I'm really delighted to hear your your thinking that way because that's that's the way we want to do it at at, at the ET as well. It's not a not a place for elite. It's a place for um, opportunities for a lot more people. So that's that's what we need. We have way too many jobs. But our post secondary is for now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I was wondering, uh, Jim, so we were, I was looking at the, the school that you're part of and, um, in the course list, there's, there's a lot of mention or more than one about blockchain. And I think a lot of our listeners, uh, like unlike AI, many people don't really understand the applicability or the value of blockchain outside of say what they've heard about Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. So I was wondering if you could talk about why there is uh, multiple mentions of blockchain and where maybe you see some of the applications of that are in, in, in the job market and in the economy. Uh, a wonderful question as well. And I think, I think you, I think you framed it perfectly. I think this idea that blockchain, that's another one of those, Things that we overestimate in the near term and underestimate in the long run, in my opinion. I think we need to figure out the environmental impact of, of the mining side, and so we'll we'll get we'll get to that in a second. Um, so from from our perspective, the, the blockchain is really a, a a technology that represents um, something that works that, that is at the center of something we're called digital intelligence, and and, and you'll hear us at he talked about an IQ, EQ, DQ, digital intelligence. This EQ framework that we're working on basically talks about the importance of being um, safe and, 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 and vibrant and connected digital citizens. And the only way we can actually be and put up our hand and trust digital is to understand um, that my identity is safe, my 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 credentials are safe and my 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 ability to be sure that transactions in which i'm involved with are safe and that's at the very center of what we call digital intelligence for we're investigating a range of both technology and also frames called deep frameworks and so when i talk about blockchain blockchain is is, is, a, is one of those technologies that at its sense if, if we strip away all the cryptocurrency side, is really about certainty of identity, the identity of the human and the identity of the certainty of the transaction. So um, by, by making those immutable or, or absolutely defensible, we can enable a whole set of processes that are, are, are pretty staggering. Everything from the work that James Graham and Guild One is doing in the, in the blockchain around around royalty to um, in, in oil and gas to some of the work that property um, rights in developing nations for so that so the transfer of property wealth um, between one generation to the next in a developing country could be absolutely certain um, to, to the emerging world of digital health life. so um, Again, we've kind of got the cart, we, we, we've got the cart ahead of the horse um, on digital health records, right? We haven't dealt with certainty of transactions, certainty of identity. And so 
Blockchain technologies out of the finance world is actually fascinates us tremendously. So um, early days, I don't want to get over too far because frankly, Eric, jobs really aren't there yet. We have to be careful based on applied technology tools. We don't want to be doing, we don't have the mandate to do massive amounts of research. But we're trying to just calibrate the blockchain's impact on all of the schools that, that we talked about earlier. So hopefully that answers your question. I don't want to frame people on the blockchain for the sake of. I want it to be tied to be some of these use cases I talked about. Oh, I think that's an excellent answer. And, and frame, you know, how do you know something is true or real or authoritative? And it's kind of, we see that with, well, in a different way with the non-fungible tokens trend, all these things to, I, is this the real deal? I like how you said uh, framing the credential. If you could block, have a blockchain for credentials, you could better verify them. Uh, you know, it's easier to forge a signature than it is the the blockchain, I think is the idea, right? Our, our folks at ICT and Dr. Rainey Wood, our dean at, at the School of ICT, stood up one of the first blockchain-enabled credentials. And he's, he's, he's rightfully very proud of that as an example. But again, what's, okay, so what's the education and, and training opportunity there? Mm -hmm. we're, starting, we're trying to figure that out as we go. Well, that's probably a great um, segue. So I want to also ask you a little bit about another thing that's come up on our podcast, um, which is augmented and virtual reality. So our, our first stepping stone was that we actually talked to one of my colleagues who I work with at Mount Royal, Tony Chaston, who's going to be teaching the first all VR course at Mount Royal University, all in VR psychology, the digital frontier is what it'll be called. So we interviewed him and talked about that, but these technologies have been reoccurring discussion. And I was curious to get your insight on what are the kinds of industries, given the understanding that AR and VR are different, uh, that are most appropriate for those technologies. And of those two, is there one uh, where you see perhaps more excitement or opportunity, kind of keeping in mind what you said about maybe uh, underestimating in the long run? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough one. But let me, let me just give you some examples. Great question. I mean, let, let me give you some examples. Um, um, in, in, a, in a school broadly like where there's a lot of trade in construction and you can imagine the power of AR um, to augment reality. VR is a tough one. So VR requires a complete immersiveness to it that, that in the tangible physical world, the bridging of the digital and the virtual the physical is really a trade school requirement. So think about construction. So our, what, I don't know if you follow Fred um, at uh, our School of Construction, mid-60s, rockstar feature of, of, uh, of uh, plumbing, and he's a red seal plumber and, and electrician. And he just picked up HoloLens and basically taught himself AR from the day. And he's now injected the entire AR uh, enabled curriculum for teaching um, some of the both intro and intermediate courses in, in, in plumbing. So when you have when you have this mesh of the physical world and the real world, AR really really rocks, right? It really creates a, a tremendous opportunity. Uh, he showed me some examples that just blew my mind, and you know he did fifties and he just loved this stuff. And just you can't help it because he taught. 
And so FABT is going to fund his program. So what? So AR to me and those kinds. Where VR gets really interesting is when it's paired in my mind with digital twinning and synthetic. So the idea where where we create these immersive environments, but we also map in to that virtual environment, you know, digital twins of, of environments that you can actually manipulate. And you know, the, the colleagues that we know well, Bizworks and, and Jeff LaFrance and, and his work and, and Synoptica and some of the other folks in Unity and um, we know all those cats and, and the red iron. I love them. I love them. Um, I think I think that the gaming engine, so the things that you know, Unreal and, and Unity, those engines um, I'm betting long and, and huge on, on just them being embedded in in just about everything we do in, in the world. So um, so I, I think that those the, the world of immersive environments that came out of gaming is going to teach us a ton. Again, underestimate in the long run, um, or and, and overestimate in the short term in VR. So that's, um, I think 5G is going to change the game on that front as well. So the enabling technologies of pushing AR, VR, XR into remote areas and create that non-latency, so really drive the latency down. I think 5G is going to be essential, obviously, for, for any of that. So hopefully that was a bit of a walkthrough of the tech. I don't know if it answers your question. But... No, it was interesting yesterday. I don't know if you had a chance to check it out, but Apple had their uh, WWDC. I haven't yet. Yeah, interesting. So, like Jim, um, it was uh, actually showing the next uh, uh, version of both in the iPad and uh, also with the iPhone. But you'll be able to go and take a picture of something, just take a few shots, and it'll create a virtual object that you can go and then embed into maybe these engines. And uh, I mean, that that's a huge, uh, you know, uh, just that wasn't possible before you'd have to go and render something like, and I would just from an image. That's amazing. And, 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 and again, I keep coming back, we, 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 we overestimate, we got all excited to be VR, you know, a couple of years ago was, oh my God, we're going to, and, and everyone's going, oh, well, look, you know, it's that awful pipe cycle, right? And then all of a sudden people are going to go, wait a second. I can take a picture of my coffee cup and I can drop that in and it's part of the ah, right? And all of a sudden you have a billion content creators in VR. Well, that changes everything. Yeah. It's a world we're building SABT in the middle of, right? So wish, wish me luck. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, this might be a nice little segue for uh, one of the things that I, I think in just society, there's a, a bit of a, a constant fear that automation, uh, you know, may uh, cause like loss of jobs and other things. And it's, it's you know, a constant topic in uh, mainstream media. Uh, you know, in many jobs, maybe they will be disappearing uh, in the decades to come. And uh, how do you think that we should train people to have a, a right balance of both soft and technical skills to stay relevant and uh, what does that balance look like? Yes, I, I think I think Chris your, your your comments right on. You know I wrote about it that you know tip of the sphere talked about that entire conversation about how we understand technology to be a part of our lives going forward is 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 
is beyond the business, the innovation of ways. It's the way we think about technology that is so, so important that we've got to get ahead of ourselves or that we've got to invest. But more practically, you know, I, I think that the, 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 when we talk about mindset, um, and, and you know my friends at uh, Inception and you and, and Margot and, 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 and Evolve You, Margot and Greg Hart um, talk a lot about the, the view of the world, right? which says that if we're going to unpack complexity in the future, we have to understand systems. We have to understand how all the pieces kind of fit together. We also have to understand uh, critical things, which means what you mean faced with a problem, how do you unpack that into its basic components? Well, you can actually teach that. You can actually unpack that and give people the skills to look at future problems and look at look at things with, with that on. And then layer on the skills that emerge as they come forward. And so the soft skills, as we call the essential competency, not, not the technical competency, but the essential competency are, are going to be actually more and more a part of what SADP is going to be. Because um, as we just talked about, AMR VR is going to fundamentally change and, and the technology is coming with it. We really need to get people to understand that that, that lifelong learning, and, and again, we've heard it a hundred times before, but how, okay, what does lifelong learning mean? It means, it means the ability to, to critically think about what's coming and, and, and care that, 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 that this is. But we also recognize that um, that there are skills and jobs that are going to disappear. And, and if I look to my left and look to my right, one of the three of us is going to lose their job in the next four years in terms of automation. And so that's not that's scary for some, but it also we need as a society, not just governments or business, but all of us need to go. We need to invest in the training and that opportunity, not just let them to the wild. Otherwise, we'll have millions of people unemployed who don't have a, uh, a chance. And that's that future disenfranchised that I was talking about. We have to be very, very careful. So that's an important part of my work. This is probably a good segue. I mean, Chris is going to kind of take us home with a couple of other reoccurring things, Jim, that have come up on the podcast. But I, before uh, we, we point to specifics, I wanted to ask you what you think the biggest challenges today are facing higher education. And so particularly, but, but not just challenges, like we're, at higher ed does a lot of things well. So what are they doing well, but then what are the big challenges that would need them to change? I think that uh, I'm going to be very controversial here. So, you know, we may have to edit it out later. I don't know. My boss. Oh, we like that. If it's okay with you, it's okay. <laughs> it, it, it's not, you know, I don't, I don't think it's what we think it is. I think the biggest challenge for higher ed is that it's business has changed. And we, we get we get kind of wired about about distance learning and hybrid learning and, and online learning and virtual learning, whatever it is. But but if you really step away, and, you know, Chris, I know you're a, you're a business thinker and a critical thinker as well, and you think strategy. You know, step away from what's happening in, in education across the world. It's actually a business model fundamental transformation. So let me, without going into a thesis on this, if you look at four credit education, so the training of post degrees and so forth, 
I can tell you that public education is under huge stress from public dollars in, their, in order they want to they want to drive the costs and, and the investment per unit. So that business model is under shift. Four-year degree, the, the five years to take it to get a new program involved. Governments are stop, they're saying that's not working, and they're slowing down that funding on a per capita basis. So that's under if you look at continuing ed, which is in part of every university and it's been traditionally a revenue driver, well, continuing ed is competing against Coursera, LinkedIn, and their business marginal costs, you know, their marginal revenue is driving the bill and their cost structure has changed. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking like an economist. So what's happening right now is where's the source of income coming from? It's actually from economic development agencies, not education agencies. So if you look at for example, OSIF in Calgary invested $8.2 million into my school. That didn't come through higher ed. It didn't come through. It came through an economic development agent. Well, our best conversations that we're having with state right now, in all due respect to the advanced minister of education and education, is with our friends in, in, in economic jobs and innovation and the Fed in, in retaining on economic jobs. So, so that's the first area. The second area is really this idea of venture, venture-backed organizations, and if not hundreds of millions of dollars, are basically saying it's not capital, and it's not ideas, and it's not market fit. It's talent. So they're starting to go, hey, you post-secondary guys, here's some we've got capital. Let's invest. So my business model is if I was a traditional uh, post-secondary has been up to advanced ed and talking to students. Completely divorced from where the real money is, which is in economic development and venture organizations. So, um, not to be too controversial there, but I think we have to be really, really aware that the higher ed, the biggest disruption to higher ed is a fundamental shift in the business model. That's my, that's my theory, Your Honor. So. Yeah, no, and I, I think that makes sense, Jim. I mean, even uh, you look at, uh, I'm sure you have come across, there's uh, NYU professor Scott Galloway, where he talks a lot about this, uh, you know, and uh, uh, and now you're seeing a lot of the uh, kind of um, maybe even the delivery of the content and people are actually questioning what value that you're getting. And, uh, you know, even I think this perception of uh, whether it's online or hybrid or, uh, you know, in person, I, I think what really happened during this last uh, year, year and a half is that, you know, now parents have seen what they're actually uh, receiving in terms of education and it, it I, I don't know I mean I look at it sometimes especially uh, for people who are tenured maybe they're they haven't revised a lot of their uh, curriculum delivery and and so on and uh, who knows I mean that's where it's just from a, a structural standpoint it's uh, maybe not the best way where um, you know a lot of uh, uh, the concentration is more towards uh, or the incentives are there for research as opposed to actually education, right? And I, I think that's where SAIT has always distinguished itself in the, the market compared to everybody else is that, you know, you have the option, you can, let's say I want to be a web designer, I can take a two-year diploma and start doing that or an app developer or whatever. And you've always had those type of programs. But, um, you know, maybe along those lines, one of the things I was going to touch upon is uh, obviously there is this increased confidence in education, uh, especially from big tech. We see Google has created these 
programs. And so those are a good example. Microsoft. And how does someone like SAIT or any kind of publicly funded higher education institution compute these? And can they uh, continue to rely on accreditation and brand? Uh, that's a $64 million question. Um, and, and so here's some thoughts. I'm, 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 I'm early, you know, I'm seven months into my chair. So, you know, I, I, I have respect for other thinkers in this space. But let me, let me take a bit of a, crack, a shot. Of, I, think, I think, number one, um, there, and this, you hear this said a lot, but I'm going to say it again and, because I'm actually living it. Is is in the in the local ecosystem of 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 a, of a region like Alberta or maybe even smaller like Calgary, there is no way. There's there's just no way you can have an abstract group like Google or a LinkedIn or a Microsoft really understand the demand pull from an employer like like Cement or Atabari. You have to understand their local context um, in order to add value. So the first thing a post-secondary has to do is add local value in the context. So we talk about global access, I reverse that and say, no, hyper-local. Understand the challenges of the regional economic system. And say, what are the companies in the, in, in the organizations truly needing from skills development? And then marry that up with the of of how you create that concierge approach. So Chris has this idea that he wants to go back to school. Instead of just taking a course, actually you join a white web service that moves you through into not only the, the, the deeper pedagogy of, of training, but actually matches you from day one into the needs of an employer in that local Otherwise, um, we will have, you know, you'll, you'll get your new skill and off you'll go. Right, you know, I, or you'll work in your basement with some firm in in Des Moines, Iowa. And so we have to be very careful on hyper localization opportunities. I think that post secondary that's 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 number one. And I think number two is, and again, it goes back to my very first point around confidence. This idea of understanding and unpacking human skills and skills for new jobs. And, and so, you know, I feel very strongly that post-secondary sector understanding of deeper pedagogy and how people learn and be the best ones which then can be repackaged into kind of more modern instead of a four-year degree, as we talked about micro-credentials or stackable credentials, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's my early take on it. Yes, I don't pretend to have it all figured out. This is a crazy complex world of post-secondary, but uh, got some thoughts then. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I appreciate you uh, sharing your thoughts. Um, you know, one other thing that uh, has been kind of a recurring thing on the podcast is just in the um, field of productivity and focus. And, and I know, you know, somebody like yourself, you surprisingly have been able to go and, you know, wear a lot of different hats. Uh, you're doing the thin air labs, you're doing the, uh, the, uh, the state side of things and so there's uh, some of the authors that we've covered is uh, there's a gentleman named cal newport 
He's a professor at Georgetown and has books like uh, Deep Work and World Without Email, where he discusses um, the terrible impact of what he calls the hyperactive hive mind, where workers look busy answering emails, but don't generate a lot of ideas there uh, for value. Uh, is there a technical, a technological solution to this problem? Uh, do you think things like AI or blockchain will help us become a little bit more focused and mindful at work? Like, and maybe even any kind of tips that you might be able to offer that keeps you efficient? Because I sent you an email and you responded very quickly. So, um, I don't think I have any ma magic there. To be honest, I think. I think that you know at SADT we're we're really starting to use um, curated AI curated sources of information for our knowledge gathering and our sensing. So those tools are becoming massively interesting. Where where I can train my AI on both on an individual basis but on, also on a collective basis to um, to become my my sensing capability. And, and curate for me, and I, that's that's actually pretty cool. We're doing some, some really interesting work on training the, the SADT AI um, from our, one of the products that we're working with. So that, that's that's a little, I'll, I'll tell you, as somebody who's written a book, um, and anybody who's listening who's written a thesis or a PhD, or you know that the human mind is a is a is a is a, is a very 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 different animal from from anything technically or technology-wise, we can add. When you get into the deepest of the flow state that we get into when we really, really focus and concentrate, you can actually, you can change entire mental models and things, and, and you can write a book, which I did. And, and if I reflect on how I wrote my book, it was in a, you know, the, the concept of flow state that I was able to get through various techniques. That's essential. I, I, I just I think that if anybody is in the world of transformation, you can't create the new with the thinking of the old. And the only way you can do that is by accessing parts of the brain and the mentality around deep thought and, and flow. And I think you have to never get to it. If it's music, if it's running, if it's meditation or whatever, I think there's a very, very special part of our brain that we're ignoring at error, which is that quiet, deep, slow state that really gets past conditional thinking. And so here's the irony, right? We're asking our leaders and our and our teams to do transformational thinking or giving none of the calm, still water opportunity to do this. So however you get there, get there and encourage your teams to get there as well. So I don't know, that's that's um, I, I, when I said at the beginning of the podcast, I'm a bit mad right now. I'm mad because mad in terms of, of too much going on is that I haven't had in the last two or three weeks, I've never had four or five hours of, of flow time that I think is really necessary for me to be a leader in this space. So I'm, I'm desperate for that bad run. You know, I do that kind of stuff in, in meditation, but boy, oh boy, calming the brain down is fun. Well, you would probably love Cal Newport's book, A World Without Email. We talked about that on one of our earlier episodes. It was my running book, by the way. So I got, I was, 
I was in that similar situation running four kilometers a day and that boat got me through it. So it was pretty awesome. Good. awesome. Um, I think this is probably a good transition, Jim, uh, to our rapid fire questions section. So these, uh, for our listeners who are not aware, these are uh, lighthearted, uh, certainly non-political. We try not to be controversial. Uh, rapid fire questions that we end all our interviews with. They are a surprise to our listeners, but we we uh, we try to customize them based on what we think the personality will be. So it's both revealing from our side and your side. So are you ready for the uh, rapid fire section? I am ready as I can be. That's right. That's a good attitude. So the first one, we'll start off easy and then it'll get a little bit more esoteric. So coffee or tea? Coffee. Mac or PC? Mac. iPhone or Android? iPhone. Do you use a digital assistant? Interesting. Standing or sitting desk? Both. Okay, so alternating. Alternating, for sure. Uh, most excited about AR or VR? Kind of asked this already. AR. Biggest future Alberta industry? Uh, agriculture. Smart watch, battery watch, or mechanical watch? Smart. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. <laughs> Google Docs or Microsoft Word? Jump ball on that one. I'll okay. Jump ball. That one's a tough one. I use both every day. Most essential phone or tablet app? Um, Strava. Oh, interesting. Most essential desktop app? Yeah. Uh, no. Tech company you think is the most innovative right now? Globally, um, Shopify. Interesting. Um, locally, um, um, I'd have to say. Favorite band? Rolling Stones. And uh, what advice would you give uh, to your 20-year-old younger self? Um, be bold. Perfect. Well, that's those are all the rapid-fire questions we had. <laughs> That is the, probably the most succinct answers. Excellent. Very good. Uh, that, this has been a pleasure, Jim. Thank you very much for, for joining us today on the podcast. I'm delighted. This is, these are great questions, and they go to the heart of what we're, what we're doing right now. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Great question. Great question. Yeah, no, thank you very much, Jim. Good to see you guys again, and uh, we'll see you in the, in the local ecosystem for sure. You yeah, bet. Absolutely. Okay. okay take, take care. care. Take care. Yeah, bye-bye. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, 
you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time. And I'm Chris Hall, the audio producer for EdTechExamined. You can get in touch with me and contact me through all of my social media at my website, which is chrishong.ca. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-O-A-N-G dot C-A.